Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Cato, or rather, welcome to virtual Cato. We're delighted to have everyone with us today. I hope you and your families remain well, and that many of you have been able to get shots in your arms over recent days and weeks, or that you'll have an opportunity to do so soon. Many like to obsess over the problems and challenges facing our country and the world. I always counter this by observing that there's never, never been a better time to be alive as a human being. This is the optimistic message and perspective Cato tries to deliver in a variety of ways, such as through our humanprogress.org platform and our 2020 book that was one of our best sellers ever, 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know by Marian Tupi and Ron Bailey. It may not seem to many that it's a great time to be alive given what we've been dealing with over the past 12 months, but even the pandemic is a prime example that this is true. The development of safe and effective vaccines as well as the host of other treatments happened in record time that in the context of history really is nothing short of miraculous. This is the empowering message we try to deliver to young people. That yes, we face challenges and problems, but look at the state of the world and humanity. Look at what we've accomplished and what we've overcome. When you do that, who can doubt the ability of human ingenuity and effort to solve the challenges we face today? The book we'll discuss this afternoon, Believe in People, bottom-up solutions for a top-down world, shares this optimism regarding what empowered human beings can accomplish and overcome. But I think it also communicates a genuine and significant concern. The concern that we're increasingly trying to solve our challenges with top-down approaches that don't work. And more and more, we're abandoning the bottom-up approaches, problem-solving at the local, community, and individual level by confident and empowered people closest to the problems and with the most relevant knowledge to them. In other words, we're abandoning the paradigm that has fueled the stunning progress of humanity and civilization over the past 300 years. I don't think the authors of Believe in People, Charles Koch and Brian Hooks need much of an introduction, but I'm gonna give them one anyway, while saying it's a genuine pleasure to welcome Charles and Brian to Cato today. Charles is one of the greatest businessmen of our lifetimes. With his father's health beginning to fail, he returned to Wichita in the early 1960s to help run the family businesses, Rock Island Oil and Refining and Coke Engineering. Since that time, these enterprises have been transformed into Coke Industries and have grown by more than 7,000 times. Today, Coke Industries is one of America's largest privately held companies, operating in 60 countries and employing more than 130,000 empowered individuals. Under Charles's leadership, Coke Industries has outperformed the S&P 500 over those decades by more than 30 to one. Just as noteworthy as his business success, Charles has been one of America's foremost philanthropists. His efforts have focused on investing in organizations of civil society that exemplify the bottom-up problem-solving approach presented in Believe in People, while he's dedicated substantial resources and effort to achieving a free and open society where every person can rise or every individual can lead a prosperous and meaningful life in safety and peace. Along the way, he's established nonprofit enterprises to help accomplish these goals, including co-founding the Cato Institute in 1977. It's been a long time since Charles has spoken at Cato, so it's a particular honor for me to welcome him back to the Institute. The primary vehicle for philanthropy and social change that Charles founded, Stand Together, is a community of social entrepreneurs led by Chairman and President Brian Hooks. Prior to his current responsibilities, Brian served for 10 years as the executive director of the Mercatus Center. Mercatus is a premier research center for market-oriented ideas. 
advancing knowledge of how markets work to improve people's lives and applying economics to offer solutions for society's most pressing problems. So Brian shares my firsthand knowledge of the joys and frustrations, but mostly joys, of course, of managing a think tank. Brian has been a good and longstanding friend to Cato. As I mentioned, Charles and Brian have recently written the book, Believe in People, Bottom-Up Solutions for a Top-Down World. In it, they concede our country's facing serious challenges, but they also insist that the top-down approach we're employing to try to solve these problems is failing and will continue to fail. The message I heard when reading the book is a call for dramatic change in approach, wherein we trust people on an individual and community level, and in particular, the people who are closest to these problems and have the most intimate knowledge of them to drive solutions. And in this is a call to action for all of us to recognize a special ability when you have to contribute to addressing these challenges and to not underestimate the impact each of us as individuals can have to sol solving them. I'm delighted Brian and Charles have joined us to discuss the book in detail. Charles, when you wrote your last book, Good Profit, five years ago, I heard you say on TV that your wife insisted she'd never let you write another book. Yet you've, uh, we're here discussing your subsequent book, Believe in People, so you've risked that gauntlet. Uh, so I assume the reasons for doing so are pretty important. Why did you and Brian write Believe in People, and what are you hoping to accomplish with the book? Well, if you know my wife, you know what she said was a little more severe than that. She said, <laughs> in fact, because I, I had a day job, so most of my effort in writing the book was in the evenings on the weekends, which interfered just a little bit with our family activities. So she said, just remember, your next book will be with your next wife. <laughs> now, she obviously didn't mean it. So I had that pressure on one side. And on the other side, Brian was pushing me to uh, to take the the principles that I I described in Good Profit that built Coke Industries and, and, and write a book on how they can be applied by individuals and societies outside of business. And, uh, and so I started on that and, and I had a lot of good ideas and, and, uh, and a lot of good material, but I couldn't seemed to get it in a form that I thought would really accomplish what I had in mind. And so after four years of, of false starts, I, I went back to Brian and I said, Brian, thanks for getting me on this, but I'm, I'm going to give up unless you join me in, in straightening this out. So we spent the last year rewriting the whole thing and ended up with the book, uh, you see, Believe in, in People. And uh, my goal for the book uh, from the beginning and still is, is that it would help, help many more people benefit from the principles of human progress that transformed my life and enabled me to accomplish more than, than I ever dreamed and is doing so today for many others. And in fact, uh, were the ideas that enabled the social entrepreneurs over the last 200 years to transform the world. And they did this by moving societies 
toward, not perfectly, but toward equal rights and mutual benefit, where people uh, uh, more fully succeeded by assisting others, by creating value for others, and where many more people uh, had the opportunity to realize their potential. And that this all started, this, this great enrichment started as societies began to believe in people and therefore began empowering them to, to uh, discover their gift, to recognize that they could contribute and succeed. And then to take the next step and turn, turn those gifts into valued skills, which they in turn use to succeed by helping others succeed. So, so what we hope for this book, it, was, it would help many, many more people take action to move us toward this ideal, toward our, our North Star uh, that lifts, as, as Peter said, that, that helps everybody rise. And, uh, and, and I took to heart, I, in, in, in learning these principles, I, I studied all kinds of, I mean, the whole range of, of ideas and philosophies, including Karl Marx. And one, one of piece of wisdom from his was that, from him was that uh, uh, philosophers only interpret the world, the point is to change it. And so that's what I've done on all of this, not just learn these ideas, but apply them. And Brian, so, Brian, you've talked what, about that's what we hope the book will help do. You've talked about changing the world through a paradigm shift to these principles and some of the big ideas upon which it's founded. What, yeah. are, what are some of those ideas? That's right. And, and in fact, we'll, we'll go even further and say we, we think we need many paradigm shifts. I mean, anybody who's paying attention these days is looking around at our country and, and saying, you know, this isn't this isn't going well, right? There's got to be a better way. And so we're not talking about small tweaks. We're talking about truly leaning in and more fully applying these principles of, of human progress that Charles just mentioned. And I think about those as the principles really that are enshrined in in the Declaration of Independence, the principles uh, that the Cato Institute, you know, was founded to uh, to advance, and that so many of us are working towards. These are our north star, and so to really get there, we need to take them seriously, and we do need paradigm shifts. And so the book puts forward kind of three big ideas. The first is is one that Charles just described: this notion that the solutions to our country's problems are going to have to be different and specific based on the problem. But the effective ones all have one thing in common, and that is they start with a deep belief in people. And that sounds obvious, but it really is a paradigm shift, because if you look at around at how we're doing a lot of things in the country right now, our systems are behaving as though most people don't have much to contribute. And so that's wrong. And if we continue down that path, we're not going to we're not going to see the kind of progress that we need to see. So we got to shift our paradigm. We got to start with a belief in people. Second big idea is that the solutions that will work best are gonna be those that empower people from the bottom up, rather than one size fits all approaches that come from the top down. And again, that's gonna entail you know, some pretty big changes in our thinking. 
And the third big idea, and we'll talk about how we've applied this to see some just tremendous results, is the idea that we will unite with anyone to do right. And we just, we get a lot more done when we focus on the common ground that we have with people who bring different perspectives or, or appear to be you know, different than we are, rather than what we typically do as a society right now is spend a whole lot of time searching for those things where we differ, and then we just focus mm -hmm. on that. And so you know, Einstein said that we're not gonna solve the problems that we have today with the same ideas that were used to create them. And we gotta take that seriously. And so, yeah, we need a paradigm shift. We need to rally the country around the ideas that are gonna help to guide us forward to solve some of our big problems. And we think that those are gonna have to be guided by that North Star, those principles of human progress. It's really an affirmation, I guess, of, of uh, really the principle, the classical liberal principles that um, really gave rise to the great enrichment, you know, the progress that we've seen over the last, last 300 years. I, I'm always uh, taken by the, 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 uh, what you said, the last part, Brian, uh, you know, uniting with anyone to do right. I know that that's taken from a great quote from Frederick Douglass. Charles, I know Frederick Douglass, you, you call him one of your heroes, uh, but he's really a great example of, I think, the, the, the uh, paradigm that you're talking about, the belief in the individual and self-actualization, empowering the individual. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. I mean, he's, he, as I, I write in the book that, I uh, wrote in the book that he's, uh, he, he is a role model for a social entrepreneur. And not only because he overcame so much and, and in spite of that, uh, of what he had to overcome, he accomplished so much, is he described his aha moments. What caused him to do that? And so there are lessons for all of us, not that we're gonna be Frederick Douglass or accomplish what he did, but we can learn from that. If I could just mention a, a few of them, I think it's important. Well, the first was when he was eight years old. Uh, he learned that he wasn't a slave, although he was born in slavery. He wasn't a slave because he was inferior. He was a slave because he was being kept ignorant. And so he determined to change that. And he, through ingenious methods, taught himself to read. And then the next aha moment for him was when he was 16, he got the opportunity to teach Sunday school to, to others who were enslaved. And, and of course, he had to surreptitiously teach them to read as well. And he said, okay, this, that he's, he has all these problems and horrors of being a slave, but what he said at last, I found a way to contribute. So he, from the start, was contribution motivated. He was looking for ways to contribute. And then, of course, he was punished brutally for, for violating the, those rules that say you're not allowed to teach slaves to, to read. But he couldn't take it anymore. And so he beat up his, uh, his uh, slave breaker that they sent him to. And because he finally said, I don't care if they kill me, I'm not going to take this anymore. And he said, at last, I'm a man. So he fully began to believe in himself. And he said, I'm not going to, I'm going to leave. I'm going to, if they kill me, I don't care. I'm going to escape. And when he escaped, he got a job in the North. 
And his first one, uh, he earned a dollar on, and he says, I'm not just a free man. I'm a free working man. Once again, he wanted to produce and contribute. And then he started going to abolitionist rallies and Garrison and all the other top abolitionists were speaking in there. They called on him to speak and they found he was the best speaker of them all. So he found his gift and he used that gift not to get vengeance against the horrors done to, to him and his people, uh, but to eliminate injustices against them uh, and not only them, against all other peoples who were suffering injustice, women, immigrants, and so on. So to me, that's a guide for all of us, that all of us can become social entrepreneurs, that anybody can be a social entrepreneur, no matter how bad your conditions are. And and that, if you can do it according by following and developing your gift, you this will help you become successful. The message about you know anyone being able to contribute, I think, is an important one. I think one of the challenges we always have is that when you look at someone like Frederick Douglass, he's an inspiration. But I think many people um, then feel, hey, I, I can't measure up to that. So I, I, it makes them feel like they don't have you know, an individual contribution to make. One of the things that I, I think is pretty interesting in the book, Ryan, is you guys have many case studies of you know, a vibrant civil society. I think we, we've been in, a, in a, uh, a cycle now where we see the state growing, encroaching on more uh, areas of our, our lives. And so we think that civil society is atrophying, but what the story you tell in the book, many of these organizations that are helping people escape poverty or addiction uh, or, or you know, get, get themselves on the right trajectory after encounter with the criminal justice system are uh, I think showing that you know, individuals do make a difference. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about some of those and, and you know, what you really feel the state of civil society is in trying to address and overcome these challenges? Well, well, I think that you're right, Peter. You I mean you pull out uh, what we try to do in the book, which is to tell stories that provide a guide for people who are looking to contribute and looking to find their role in helping to move our country closer to those ideals that we talked about, the North Star. And I agree with you. You hear a story like Frederick Douglass's and you think, wow, thank goodness for incredible people like him. Yeah. And I think that that is right. But the wrong thing to conclude is that it's, it's only going to be exceptional people like, like Douglas that are going to move the country forward because the history of our country is a, a history of struggling uh, to address injustices that move us closer to that North Star. And the social entrepreneurs who have done that are people who, you know, if you were in panel of expert, uh, blue, blue panel expert or, or blue ribbon panel of experts, to choose, they would never choose the people who turn out to be the social entrepreneurs. Right, right. And so, you know, Frederick Douglass was an enslaved individual, right? Yet he finds his gift and he finds a way to literally change the course of world history. Um, and so that's what we, that's the, those are the stories that we tell in the book. Uh, the people that are closest to the problems uh, are often those that are best positioned to address them. And so you look at a problem like, um, you know, like, like poverty in the in the country, for instance, we opened the book with a story about a group that we work with called the Family Independence Initiative, 
And this is an extraordinary organization. I think it illustrates these, these principles that everyone has a gift and these bottom-up solutions make a huge difference. Family Independence Initiative works to address poverty in our country. Uh, they were founded uh, by a guy named Mauricio Miller who grew up in poverty, somebody who was closest to the problem that he's addressing. And they're now run by a guy named Jesus Herrera, same life story. And what they do is they don't tell people in poverty how to change. They say, look, the answer to your challenges are, is within you. You need some help, just like we all do, help in the form of financial capital, some resources, as well as social capital, what we all rely on to be successful in our lives. And so they put families in poverty together in cohorts, and they give them about $3,500 over a couple of years, not a ton of money, but enough to make a difference. And they support them in helping them to discover their gifts and apply them in a way that helps themselves and their families to overcome poverty. And that, that approach is uh, seen throughout all of these different organizations that we found uh, are, are being tremendously effective in the face of really tough odds. So you look at the war on poverty, right? The, the top-down alternative to a program like Family Independence Initiatives, where blue ribbon panels of experts tell people in poverty what to do differently, and we spend trillions of dollars to do that. And of course, the results speak for themselves. The rate of poverty in this country hasn't budged for 60 years. But with Family Independence Initiative, a bottom-up solution, a family that works with them for just two years, uh, on average, will improve their income by about 27%, which, which is huge relative to that baseline. But more importantly, it's enough to put them on a trajectory, not just to get out of poverty, but to stay out of poverty, which is the, the real challenge with programs like this. They double their, their savings, uh, and they realize a way to contribute and get on the right path. And so this bottom-up approach that we talk about, it's not just for extraordinary people. It really is right. something that everybody can get engaged in. And that's how you scale this approach. When everybody finds the way to apply what they've got to offer and they follow these principles, that's how you can accomplish you know, what otherwise seem like impossible challenges. Could I mention another one? Another sure. Case, Peter? And that is uh, someone, and, and he's someone I identify with. He's totally different background, but we had similar aha moments. And uh, uh, Anton Lucky uh, grew up in, in South Dallas, tough neighborhood. So uh, probably out of self-defense, he, he founded the Bloods in Dallas. And, uh, and of course got in all sorts of trouble and went to prison, I think when he was 19. And there he met somebody who'd been in prison for uh, over a decade. Uh, and, and he said, Anton, you, you are a natural leader. You, all these young prisoners and others want to be associated with you, follow you. And the problem is you've been leading for bad and you can lead, also lead for good. And if you want to lead for good, I will help you and you can transform your life. And then talks, wow, I didn't know I could do that. And so it, like me, he went to the library and started reading all these books to figure out how to do it. And he read Plato's Republic and about the cave and, and the people in the cave locked in the, uh, kept in the cave only saw shadows, they never saw reality. And he said, that's been my life. I've, I'm just living in shadows. I'm gonna go out and, and deal with reality and, 
and try to help people rather than hurt people. And so he, 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 he heard on the radio, uh, Bishop Omar, who was running urban specialists then about how to keep kids out of gangs, how to get uh, the, the police and, and uh, communities to work together. And he said, I'm going to join them. And he joined them and became a leader there. And then at one of our events, I was visiting, well, how, because we, we offer our, our management framework, market-based management to all these social entrepreneurs if they believe it'll help them. And so I said, how's that coming? And he said, well, at first we were skeptical because we were running urban specialists like we run a gang and it was, it did some good, but it was kind of limiting us. And, and then he went through how he was applying all the dimensions of market-based management and the successes they were having. I said, Anton, you have learned market-based management quicker than any executive of any company we've ever acquired. That's great. Now that, Talk about bottom up. Right, right. But that's you, you do, people do not know the potential in people who have never been empowered and what it can do to transform them. So, Peter, you asked about the, the state of civil society. I think this is a really important point and one that we try to get, get across in the book. You know, this is not a new idea for people who have been working in classical liberalism and, and, and in these principles of human empowerment. You see it in Adam Smith, you see it in Tocqueville. You see it in people that we cite in the book, like Dick Cornell, and, and over the years, the role that the voluntary sector, that civil society, including these community organizations and business, plays in a free and open society of empowering people to do what Charles just described and, and the, the, what I described with the Family Independence Initiative. It's absolutely essential to the progress that we can make. And I think it's critical right now that we we tell these stories and we we offer them as a guide for people who are positioned to take action on these principles in similar ways. You know, I used to work at, you mentioned the Mercatus Center, and I worked with a guy named Russ Roberts, who's just an amazing mm -hmm. storyteller, you know. A, econ a, talker. An econ talker. You got it, right? Russ is a great guy. And Russ used to challenge me. He'd say, you know what? We're making the right arguments in economics. And he's an economist. He's trained by Milton Friedman, right? I mean, this is in Russ's blood. Said, so, but man, people are just not, they're not going to be sitting around a campfire singing songs about the kind of work that we're doing right, and, right. and policy as important as it is. Yeah. I tell you what, the stories in this book and the people that we encounter, people like Antong or people like Jesus Herrera, these are people that you sing songs about. These are people that can really inspire others to say, wait a minute, this is the right way for our country to go forward. And I think that's a big part of what we're trying to get across is we got to celebrate the application of these ideas and demonstrate how it truly makes a difference in people's lives, because this is the answer forward. And if this isn't the answer, man, some of those others that are on offer right now, they're they're awfully scary. And I mean, and and if we if we recognize that we need a par paradigm shift in people's thinking, uh, like uh, culture precedes politics. It isn't. You're not going to get anywhere in politics until people change their paradigm. And you've got to go from, from top down to, to bottom up. And so what, what's involved in, change, in somebody changing their paradigm? Well, what is a paradigm? It's a, it's a worldview where you tend to only accept the facts that fit your paradigm mm -hmm. and reject those facts or evidence that, that doesn't fit your paradigm. 
So this is heavy lifting to change your paradigm. I mean, it's like uh, a weightlifter wanting to become a marathoner. It takes effort, uh, strenuous effort and, and desire over time. So our job is to, is to give enough evidence and, and enough motivation to people to make that effort. And so, as Brian said, we've got to show these stories. This works and that doesn't. This will make your life better and those you care about. It will, it will eliminate the injustices you're, 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 you're worried about. Uh, and, and, but then we've got to celebrate. We've got to the, the, get the word out. And so we've got to scale and, uh, and, and, and get this uh, uh, enough into people's consciousness so they're willing to make that effort. Yeah, it is kind of interesting because we mentioned how these principles played an important role in the great enrichment, you know, the hockey stick that's occurred over the last 300 years. In the introduction, Charles, I mentioned the kind of 7,000 fold growth in Coke Industries and, you know, how much you've beaten the S&P by. And I, it, it does occur to me in reading the book and listening to you talk that you're really saying, hey, it's the same principles that when you apply them, they become so powerful. Um, the challenge is, as you say, injecting them into society, getting people to adopt them, to start practicing them. Uh, do you think this is the best way to tell these stories and people get inspired by, by, uh, by what they see ordinary folks like Anton do or the Family Independence Initiative folks, et cetera? I, I, it seems to me that's a, you know, you, you kind of sold me, you, you've sold me, but it, you know, make, making that um, paradigm shift in society so that you can create the social transformation seems like the part of it that's the real heavy lift. I think the best way to do it, Peter, is to is to experience it. So stories hopefully are enough to get people interested, to, to just pique their interest and say, wait a minute, we don't have to settle for the options on offer. There is a better way. But then we got people got to take action and actually see for themselves that this approach, these principles are a better way for them to accomplish the goals that matter most to them and ultimately to help those, those around them that they care about. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we talk about the need for transformation in those key institutions that we rely on as a society to empower people to realize their potential. We talk about the role that education plays in that, strong communities, the business businesses that people work for, and that create value in our society, and then sound public policy plays a critical role. And if if you're somebody who's interested or or working in any one of those areas, and that describes almost everybody in our country, you're likely working in a top-down environment because that's just the way things are right now. And it's frustrating, and the data shows that it's frustrating, right? If you're a student, by the 12th grade, 70% uh, of students say they're completely disengaged from their studies. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's not going to work, right? I mean, I mean, education is not going to do its job. If you're working in business, uh, unfortunately, you're probably experiencing a similarly stifling environment. That's just what the, what the data shows. And of course, nobody trusts the government these days, right? And, and for good reason. They're not exactly passing policies to empower people. And so if you're working in any one of those areas, take the first step, right? Do as Antong did as somebody who's making his community stronger. Stop leading for bad and start leading for good. If you're a teacher, right, stop teaching to the test and doing this one size fits all, innovate. And once you start to get the experience of that and you see, wow, this is working, not just better for my students, but for me, 
that's, I think, when you start to be open to this paradigm shift that, that Charles is talking about. And, and fortunately, there are tons of options, practical options, ways for people to take that first step that can begin to, to turn these principles more into a habit than something that you look at from afar. Yeah, it's what uh, the, a, a good friend of Hayek's uh, of philosopher of science, Michael Polanyi, wrote his book, uh, Personal Knowledge, besides an, another, an essay of his Republic of Science. Uh, we both, th those are some of the principles of human progress that we we apply here at, at, at Coke. And, uh, and what we find in in applying these principles, for example, uh, what's made us successful at Coke Industries is is focusing on creating value for all our constituencies, and that's the first thing. What capabilities do we have that will create value for for the people and the organizations that are important, whether it's our customers, our suppliers, and then empowering our employees, our communities, and so on. And why do we do that? Because they're they're wanting us to succeed and helping us to succeed are critical to our succeeding long term. And we find as we do this and our employees get in the habit, uh, this is going back to, to Polanyi's concept of personal knowledge, it's not just conceptual knowledge, this knowledge and these habits became a part of yourself. Uh, they say not not when they're still working here, but after they leave, they call me, write me, come in and see me, and tell me this this whole approach of empowering others and and focusing on how do I create value for others in a that's in a uh, the, in a mutually beneficial way has changed my life, and now I'm in my church or my synagogue. I'm able to help them be more effective in reaching their parishioners. It's improved my family life. It's improved my philanthropy, and it's transformative. And you look at what portion of the population is working in businesses. Every business would apply this. That alone would transform right. society. I, when I was reading the book, it was interesting because I thought that, hey, there's some message in there for folks who aren't familiar or haven't bought into classical liberal principles. So we're kind of, you know, we have a message for people who aren't classical liberals, but when I think about it and I hear you discuss this, I think it sounds like there are some important lessons for those of us who are, you know, believe in those principles, which is we need to widen the aperture a little bit. We tend to get focused on policy arguments. You know, the government does a lot of harm. We tend to focus on telling people all the bad things the government's doing and I guess it's pretty bad marketing because we're not, you know, focused on all the great things that, you know, real people are doing out there. We're not telling the optimistic, you know, side of the story. Yeah, as we've really focused on this in, in Stand Together and in Coke Industries and in partnering with all sorts of people and really applying this Republic of Science to, to building knowledge networks and sharing knowledge and trying to help others and it's uh, it is truly uh, transformative, and you may want to talk a, a little about what the gains we've made in stand together since we really started focusing on this on 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 following Frederick Douglass, uniting with anybody to do right and no one to do wrong. 
Yeah, well, Peter, you're right. You had a paradigm shift there, right? And you talk about it in the book about how you took a stronger foray into partisan politics. In the book, you say that that was a mistake, that it created a mess, and now you're trying a different approach. More of a, well, you tell us about it, Brian. Yeah, well, no, you got it. I mean, to your, to your first question about how does policy balance into really trying to make make sure that we have a society that's characterized by our North Star, by this notion of, of equal rights and mutual benefit where everyone can succeed uh, and realize their potential by contributing in society. And, you know, in a lot of ways, this is kind of going back to basics. Mm -hmm. the, the whole point of a social theory, or, or as you say, classical liberalism or the, the principles of human progress is to, to discover how people can w live well together. It's a holistic vision of a good society. And public policy is a critical component of that. So it's not that you don't focus on policy, you do. And of course we do a lot of, of, of work to help pass policies that can empower people. But if you only focus on policy, it's like trying to advance a good society with two hands and one leg tied behind your back, right? right, right. You're, you're, not, you're not taking advantage of all of what really, what really is important uh, towards, towards that vision. And so we say alongside policy, you've gotta be concerned about a vibrant voluntary sector. You've gotta be concerned about how business is contributing and how community organizations are working. And you gotta really be focused on, are we helping people to discover their gifts through the education system? When you put all of that together, that's when you start to really, really see the opportunity for everybody to get engaged. So then that leads into, into your second point. You got to make sure that you're consistent in the application of those principles across each one of those areas. And so when we're looking at how are we, how are we working to improve education? You know, we want to make sure that we're practicing those principles. Are the solutions based on a belief in people? Do they empower people from the bottom up? Are we looking past our differences to find common ground, to grow the coalitions that can really push progress forward? And so on throughout each one of these areas. And when it comes to public policy and politics in particular, though that's only one piece of what we do, and in fact, you know, politics uh, has never been more than about 10% of the overall effort, but you still gotta make sure that you're, you're consistent in your principles. And that's what we discuss in the book is that for about a six year period, about three election cycles, as we got engaged in, in politics, we got involved in partisanship, because that's how everybody does it, uh, rather than partnership. And we learned quickly that while you can accomplish some stuff that way, you're never actually gonna be able to, to take on the really big challenges in society and public policy. And so we changed, right? We said, hey, we gotta be consistent and practice our principles. And as soon as we started leaning into, look, we'll work with anybody to do right. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat, you wanna empower people through public policy, we got your back. Man, did we start, start accomplishing things. And so that's, that's the track that we're on. And, and we talk in the book, about what it means to do that in a principled way and, and how that can help us to accomplish things that other people look at and say, uh, that, that we won't even touch it because it looks too hard. Criminal justice was a great example of that. The first step back in the broad coalition you guys helped put together. We find that in our criminal justice work, you know, we're equally engaged with Democrats and Republicans on the issue. Um, I'm going to go to some questions in a minute from the, from the group that's listening, but I want to follow up on this a little bit. Um, one of the challenges that I find in, you know, coalition building and trying to constructively engage with everyone is that um, folks who you're aligned with sometimes conflate um, 
being principled with being combative or being outraged. And they think that if you're not outraged, you're not, you know, standing by your principles um, strongly enough. And I just think that's a real mistake because, um, you know, Cato, we've, we've, you know, held, you know, we're always open to uh, reassessment, but we haven't reassessed on many policies. You know, we've kept the same uh, principled view on policy issues, stands on policy issues for decades. We haven't changed uh, through political cycles. Um, and I just think there's too much outrage out there. And I want to be friends with everybody because that's the way you constructively engage, you persuade. But right now, our, um, you know, the zeitgeist isn't wired that way. Everyone wants to see you fighting and yelling. And um, do you get pushback from some of your supporters or um, people who, you know, are, again, are equating, you know, we're not gonna abandon deeply held beliefs yeah. and, and uh, matters of principle. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't turn down the volume and really try to be, you know, much more persuasive and engage with a broader audience. But see, I, I think we, the, the a major problem today is that, is we've got the wrong paradigm in here. It's, mm -hmm. it's left versus right. And that your tribe is left or your tribe is right. And then you see as the leaders in these tribes change their opinion on policies and what to do, then the whole gang flows with them. So they're abandoning principles. And the real contest that's going to make a difference is, do we have a bottom-up society that empowers people, or do we have a top-down society that gets power over people? Mm -hmm. And this is very dangerous. Because you look at the history of a good part of the 20th century, and it was a struggle between left and right in country after country. And, and, and the more they, the people felt threatened by the left, then they would join the right. And the right would get more extreme and pretty soon would become a tyranny. And those who were more threatened by the right joined the left. And that turned into a tyranny. Mm. And so, so we've got to change that paradigm and get people to realize that, that don't just follow whatever strong man comes up and says they can get rid of this, the, the evils on the other side, because the more they act that way, the way they're going to abandon these principles of human progress and 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 fall in the same trap or the or not for them but for their people when you mentioned strongmen how concerned are both of you about just the um you know the attacks on liberalism that are happening and this is not you know there's been a lot of talk about it in the u.s but just quite globally um you know when you look at some of the governments um and political movements in Europe. Um, it's something I find very concerning. Um, it gets to exactly what you were just discussing because I meet Americans, for example, who um, aren't repelled by someone like Viktor Orban or what's going on in Poland. They, they say, well, I like his social policy or I like his uh, tax policy. And so uh, how concerned are the two of you about um, 
you know, the threat to liberalism, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Well, I mean, I, I, I'll be very, very clear. I think it's the greatest challenge of our time. I think that those of us who have studied history and have worked, you know, as you, as you have, Peter, and, and I mentioned, I imagine many people that are watching right now, those of us that have worked towards a free and open society for our whole lives, I mean, now is the time to to stand up for these ideas and to make the case based on the evidence that this is the path that is going to help people to realize their potential, to live their best lives, to contribute in a way that helps others to to improve their lives. Because, you know, right now, I, I don't, I don't, it's certainly never been a more urgent moment than today in, in my life, lifetime. Mm -hmm. And when, when you see so many people in our country feeling like the American dream is no longer a possibility for them, and, and for many people that, that, they feel that way for good reason because these institutions are failing them. That's when people start to turn to failed ideas, you know, call it nationalism, call it socialism. They're all different versions of this top-down approach that basically excludes people from being part of society because they don't feel like they've got much to offer. They, they promise them these, these impossible promises that sound like quick fixes, but ultimately lead to terrible places. And liberalism is a different way. Right. And so making the case that you don't have to settle for this false choice between two failed approaches, but there is a better way. And it's a, it's something that a lot of different people can get on board with because it's the best way to accomplish, you know, what you care about. I mean, I think it's the most important thing that, that anybody can be doing right now. I mean, that's that's my sense. Yeah. And I, I, I put this in in the context of, of one of uh, Hayek's great insights, and which is in, if those interested, is in the second volume of Law, Legislation, and, and Liberty, in which he said, what, what he called perhaps the greatest discovery of mankind, and that is that people can live in peace and to their mutual advantage, it, to paraphrase him here, if they are only limited by abstract rules of conduct. So what does that mean? That means that the, the government rules should, should only be general and not specifically uh, uh, controlling people and limiting what they're doing, but empowering them. And, and therefore the government's role is to set these basic rules, which would, in, in our view, would be based would be uh, uh, equal rights and mutual benefit where people succeed by helping one another. So you get rid of cronyism, corporate welfare, all of those things where, where the government rigs the system or, or, or conspires with businesses or other groups to rig the system. So everybody truly has equal rights. And, and then when that happens, when government acts in that way, then that enables all the other key institutions in society, community, education, and business, to focus on empowering people rather than one-size-fits-all, top-down approach. You know, Peter, on the wall at, the, at Stand Together, we have another Hayek quote uh, written, you know, in big letters. And it's the it's the idea that we 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 must once again make the building of a free and open society 
an intellectual adventure and a deed of courage. And I think that deed of courage line is more important today than it's been for a long time. And that is ultimately what our book is trying to contribute to, is helping people who feel that same concern to see a path forward for how they can contribute and how they can act on that courage to help to, uh, to, to bring about a, a better society. Yeah, one of the questions that came in actually concerns, you know, you know, whether a question about whether someone can really make it make a difference. Um, the um, um, sometimes I meet with folks who despair that we're moving away, not towards a free and open society. Some say we're doomed, um, and um, so there's a issue of of you know despair that the question that the situation seems dire and. Um, people feel fatalistic, giving up, that there's not enough um, that, that um, any one person can do. So is there really a, a, a basis for optimism? Yeah, uh, I well, think the question here. And I think I'll probably know your answer. Well, I, I, I think Maslow said that well. He said, he, and he said that very thing. All, he, he said the problem in, in having a society where people are empowered and, are, and can self-actualize and, and become contribution rather than negatively motivated, he said the problem is that they say that, that I'm just one person, what can they do? He said that's all there is. Mm -hmm. Each of us are just one person. So what do we do? Well, we join together. We partner with people who sh we share vision and values, and and particularly those who have complement with whom we have complementary capabilities. So together, we make each other much more successful. That's how movements are built. You look at all the, the 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 great successful movements in the history of this country: the abolitionist movement, the women's rights movement, the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement. It all happened that way with just one people, one person at a time joining together to create this movement. So that's what we need to do today to create these movements. And the way we do it is join together. And that's what stand together is. The reason we've had some effect is we all together, we would have uh, thousands who who work directly with us and and hundreds of thousands who who are activists and work with us on different issues right. or maybe more no that's exactly right and peter you you did you did a great job i think in framing the challenge at the in the opening of this this talk these are real problems and we have to address these problems if we don't they will have severe consequences today and into the future of our country but the trend of liberalism is positive and we can mm -hmm. never forget that. Today is the best, as you said, the best time to be alive is today. Absolutely. Mary Tooby's work has been awesome on this at Cato. You've had Steve Pinker talk about this. Uh, we, we cite Deirdre McCloskey extensively in the book. Don Boudreau, whenever, whenever we see Don, he says, look, we have to make sure that people realize that these ideas are working. We have a long way to go to fully realize them, but they are helping empower people across the, the world to an extent that, that was not even imaginable two, 300 years ago. So the trend is positive. The challenge right now is real, but we gotta, we gotta make sure that we bring more and more people to recognize what actually works in solving these problems. See, I, I think too, it's the same problem in, in, as in business. So many are, are concerned about short-term pro problems, 
or short-term profits rather than, okay, how can I be successful over a long period? And then you become focused on building capabilities. Mm -hmm. And that's what we need to be focused on, building capabilities and appealing to a broad range of people. And when I see all the people who are uh, across the, the ideological spectrum who are attracted to ideas, I think you can see them in all the people who've endorsed uh, the, our, our book, uh, Believe in People, uh, they're across the ideological spectrum. Absolutely. And that's because we're offering a different way, a better way. They're sick of this, this tribal warfare where people are trying to hurt each other rather than succeed by helping each other. One of the questions that came in was uh, related to, you mentioned philosophers a, a few times now, um, Charles, and the question is, isn't this largely a matter of philosophy, that there's kind of a pernicious collectivist philosophy that's been taking hold on society? And are there, you know, kind of life-affirming um, philosophers who celebrate the individual that we should be, you know, using as a kind of counterweight? To the but see, I would say people. rather than collectivist, I, I would say top-down. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I mean, it, because it's it, it isn't the collective. It's a few people get power and 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 they get people following them because they convince them that the other side will make it worse. And and it just it, it rather than being a virtuous cycle, it becomes a destructive spiral. And, and so the only way we, we change that is to find a way to have everybody uh, participate in the progress. And that's what we're trying to do. And as we do that, things get better. One question that's come in says, if we stress the importance of addressing basic needs, food, shelter, et cetera, to create a mutual benefit, could this in some way be turned on its head and be misconstrued as an argument for more kind of top-down planning to provide those things? No, no, but see, as I said in the beginning, and we've been talking all, the key is to have people believe in themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and if you give people more and they don't believe in themselves, they, they will have a negative attitude. And well, somebody's getting more goodies than I am, or or I don't like what they're doing. Whereas you focus on, on 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 finding your gift, using it to contribute, and 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 that making you successful, enabling you to believe in yourself, then you're going to want to partner with others because you see. You're not good at everything. And if you partner with others who are good at things you're not, you'll be more successful. And so uh, that's what, what changes it. So it's, I mean, Maslow had it. It's to help people self-actualize, to develop their capabilities and realize their potential. And when people do, do that, they become contribution motivated rather than negatively motivated. I think we're getting close to the end here. Um, I want to thank both of you. I think that um, you know this has really provided a great um, 
you know, overview of what the book's about. I mean, what I hear coming through your, your uh, um, comments again and again is kind of a call to action to people as individuals that, you know, we all can make a difference and we can't just uh, point fingers at the institutions that aren't, aren't functioning. We have to take responsibility for changing things. And that's obviously, uh, um, you know, as, as we've discussed, you know, very consistent with classical liberal principles. Uh, when we talked about the challenge of getting people involved and getting them to believe they can make a difference, I think one of the best uh, stories I've ever heard in that regard is um, Justice Thomas, Clarence Thomas. Uh, the first time I ever met him, he was speaking to a small group of a few dozen people. And he said that um, whenever he's traveling or he's in an airport or a public place, um, he was giving a discussion about why it's so important to defend liberty and defend um, the principles that we've been talking here, the principles of liberalism. He said whenever he's in a public place like an airport, someone will come up to him and thank him for his service, thank him for defending liberty, um, thank him for the work that he's been doing. And he said his response always is, okay, what about you? Um, and I think that sounds like that's the message that, uh, that you guys are, are, are giving here that, yeah. um, you know, individuals who are empowered, you know, can make a difference. That's where the change has got to come from. And we're not going to, uh, to get there if we just indulge in, in, uh, whining and complaining about, uh, these challenges or pretending that they're intractable or something that we're not capable of, uh, of overcoming. Our country is too um, important to be left to somebody else, right? I mean, this is the cavalry's not coming. No, this isn't. This isn't somebody else's job. This is all of our role to make sure that we help to in, in, involve these principles further in our country, so that we have a, be a better future. Well, I think yeah. we all need to recognize, if we're not helping make things better, we're part of the problem. So, if you want to feel good about yourself and you want to be optimistic of the future do something about it yeah and i have to say peter what you guys are doing at cato i mean it's so important and you and i've talked about this cato's always been a critical Absolutely. organization i i can't think of a of a more important time for cato to be doing what you guys are doing and doing it so well so thank you for what you're doing and, and for everybody that's involved well brian thanks for that um you know it'll be a little mutual admiration here thank you for what you guys do um you know charles you played a big role in building you know, the classical liberal ecosystem in the U.S. Cato is an important part of that. Um, and um, and we thank you for your role in, in founding Cato and all the work that you guys are doing at, uh, at Stand Together. Well, um, you all are making me proud. <laughs> thanks so much. When uh, when people say we're doomed, I'd say, look around. You know, things are great. Um, and I don't believe that we're doomed. But if we are, my kids and my grandkids are going to see me going down swinging. <laughs> you and me both, my you friend. I'm a, I'm 85 and I'm working harder at it than ever. Yeah, it's it's great. Um, this all keeps you young. So couldn't think of anything I'd be rather doing. Right. Thanks both for your time today. Thanks everyone for uh, for joining us. And uh, we look forward to uh, being back before too long. I hope doing events in in person. Um, but meanwhile, stay safe. And uh, look forward to uh, speaking to everyone again soon. Thanks so much. You bet. Thank Thanks, you, Peter. Peter.